Welcome to the How Soccer Explains Leadership podcast, where we explore leadership principles through the lens of the beautiful game. Here are your hosts, Phil Dark and Ryan North. Welcome back to the How Soccer Explains Leadership podcast. Today I have an old friend, Amanda Cromwell, with me. She is the head coach of the women's soccer team at UCLA, and a whole lot more than that, too, which we'll get into today. Amanda, how are you doing? I'm good. It's been quite an interesting couple months, but we're back on the field training, so I'm excited, and it's good to see you and tell the family hello. Yep, I definitely will do that, but folks out there, you're not wondering about that right now. What you're wondering about is what Amanda has to say about this intersection of life, leadership, and the beautiful game that we get to talk about on this show, and this is really cool for me because Amanda and I have been talking about this for a while. We got a, a lot of stories that are not for this episode either. But one of the cool things is a little known <laughs> fact about this show is that this started as a book idea. And Amanda and I actually talked about maybe collaborating on that in some way a few years ago. I can still remember that conversation. But it has now taken the form of a podcast. So those of you listening out there, you have the benefit of us changing the format. And if you're a reader, I apologize for not putting that book together, but they are sometimes harder than it seems to put together. So Enough about that. Amanda, can you share your story with our audience? Some of them may know you're a UCLA soccer coach. Some of them may know that you have a, a history plan, but can you just put the pieces together and share how you got to be where you are today? Yeah, sure. I have a quite a long history with the game from playing, starting to play when I was like five, six years old, playing at the University of Virginia. I grew up in Northern Virginia, played club there and high school and did all basketball as well, but basically I made the national team when I was in college in 90 was my first camp and I was on the national team for seven, eight years. I played pro after I had gone into coaching and the pro league started the first one, the WUSA. So I played three years of pro where our paths crossed and now I've been coaching over 20 years in the college game, most, most recently at UCLA for seven years. I was at the University of Central Florida for 14 and the University of Maryland, Baltimore County for uh, two seasons. And as you said, you've played for a lot of pretty amazing teams without going into all the details about that. One of the things we know, and I know because we've talked about a lot of it, but you've played with, you've been coached by, You've coached with some pretty amazing people from all over the world over the course of your career. I don't know if it's a little known fact or a well-known fact, but you've played with both of the players of the century, the women players of the century in the 20th century with Sun Wen and Michelle Akers, Homari Sawa, Julie Foudy, Mia Hamm, a whole lot of other players, but those are just naming a few. But in all your years of playing and coaching, who are one or two of the best leaders that you've played with and or coached with? And really what set them apart from the rest? When you ask that question, so many names and coaches come, not only players, teammates, but also coaches come to mind. But I'll start with some teammates. Some of my captains on the national team, Carla Overbeck, Julie Foudy, they were both very different leaders, but led in very effective ways. Carla was probably one of the most respected players out there just with just how even keel she was. Obviously a great player, but... And it was really about just what she brought to the table as a teammate, very trustworthy. You could just rely on her and, and know you could go to her uh, for anything. She would have your back. Bowdy was a leader, more a little more vocal and gregarious and 
had that spirit and passion that the team fed off of. And they both led by example. They were always just determined, dedicated teammates. Got to throw Michelle Akers in there as one of the leaders by example, just putting everything on the line. Talk about sacrificing for your teammates and willing to do anything. That was Michelle for sure. And then some of the coaches I was able to coach with Tony DeChico. I was an assistant of his on the U20 national team. So I not only was coached by him, but I also coached with him. And he was an incredible leader. The way he brought his players together in a way that was very family-like. And he made sure that you knew he cared about you. None of these people were perfect in any way, but I think they knew that too. They would apologize for their imperfections and they knew there was things that they could do better and they were always seeking to do better. And Tony was, was really a player's coach and that's who I tried to emulate. And so was my college coach, Lauren Gregg, who also was an assistant on the national team. I think they both really tried to tap into what it's like for the player in the moment and be those kind of coaches for us. And I, I think through the years, I've had so many influences, whether it's teammates or opponents and coaches that I've taken the good when I could get it and tried to hopefully have developed my, my own leadership style in a way that reflects what they added to my life. A couple of the things that you talked about there that really stuck out to me was really the leaders are the ones who are getting to know you, are loyal, are wanting to understand who you are and how they can work with you and, and hopefully get the best out of you, whether it's the coach doing it from that position or from the, the captains and, and other leaders. What I heard, what I understood was really with the coaches that you were talking about, with the players that you were talking about, the common, one of the common threads, the common themes was really that they were seeking to understand you and your teammates so that they could connect and help to bring the best out of you and to be there for you. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. It's all about connection to me. Your players need to know that you care about them. They need to know that it's about more than just wins and losses. It's about life after and relationships after developing them into the women they're going to be. And like we have them, especially in the college game, at a really important time in their lives where they're really growing and searching and seeking who, who they are and communication and leadership and just teaching them the values of what it means to be a great teammate is something that's going to last with them for their whole life, but in their families and their careers and in any relationship, really. So with that, a similar question, but a little different. So what are some of the life and leadership lessons that you have learned playing or coaching from the game itself? One of the ideas here is your work is important, even if nobody is watching. So moving off the ball is critical in the game even though most people don't even see it. So that's really a life lesson as well, that the work that you're doing may not ever be seen, but it's still critical to teamwork. What are some of the, maybe one or two of those lessons that you have learned from the game that you have used in your leadership or you've seen others use in their leadership? Well, I come from the era of the national team when we didn't have all of these camps and we had to do a lot of it on our own. We had to train on our own. We had to make sure we were fit. And this is before we had a pro league. So I think the, the mindset of what are you doing when people aren't watching is really important. And how do you, and it's not just about training, how you're conducting yourself, are you, how you living your life, what are your habits, are you sleeping well, are you eating well, are you taking care of yourself, are you being a good human being, are you giving back to the community? These are all things that you know, we did 
away from the spotlight for so many years. Like we didn't have people necessarily standing over us, telling us what to do every second. We didn't have all of these community service opportunities thrown at our feet, but they, they do now, which is great with the resources, but to seek out a lot of our own environments in a lot of different ways. And so you know, to me, it's, it's about figuring out in your mind, having that determination and that dedication and desire to do it on your yourself, no matter who's watching and no matter what kind of accolades you get or don't get. It's not about that. It's about being a part of the community, being the best teammate can be, being the best friend or daughter, whatever it might be. So along the way, I think that was really important to me. And this morning in training, there's like little things that you know, there's little lessons every day, I think, in, in training sessions that you can pull into leadership opportunities and whether it's, you know, one of our student athletes wasn't diligent about making her mentor meeting. So we had to make a point of certain things as well. So this, these things not being done by one player brings down the whole team because it reflects on the whole team. It reflects on me as a coach. So that's what I think when you're part of a team, it's really important that you are really representing a whole group of people that you're representing a university and these young players they get it, but sometimes it's a little slow with a rookie year, but they just have to figure it out. And hopefully we help them figure it out. So Amanda, with that, I've heard in the past, you talking about the importance of the players needing to face adversity, needing to really to fail in some ways and needing to overcome that failure and adversity. Why is that so important for the players and how does that prepare them for life after soccer? Well, I think they're gonna have adversity in their life. It's, it's silly to think they're not. So if they can have it before they get to college and parents can let them be okay to, you know, if they struggle with a class and let them figure it out. If they have a bad game or a coach yells at them in a certain way that is maybe a little hurtful, sometimes let them go discuss things with the coach. I think a lot of times parents and wanting to protect their children, don't let them figure it out on their own and deal with adversity. And because in college, you're like, I don't, I don't talk to parents in college. I talk to the, the student athletes. So they have to be good, really good communicators. And we have to really guide them and dealing with these opportunities for growth. And whether it's not playing, not starting, not traveling, there's a whole gamut of things. I might struggles with academics or relationships. And I think the more they can learn to overcome, they get confident and they'll be ready for anything that comes their way in the future. So I think we need to set them up for success. And if they don't learn how to deal with adversity, I think we set them up for failure. And I think that's absolutely a leadership principle. There's an entire book that John Maxwell wrote on it called Failing Forward. And really the idea that we typically do learn more from our failings than our successes. We typically do learn more from our losses than our wins. It's not that we wish to lose, obviously, but it seems to be those are the things that we remember the lessons from those a bit more than the high of the win. Is that something you've seen in your coaching and your playing? I've been watching a lot of documentaries and things on different teams and especially in soccer and one of the coaches, I think it was Klopp. Well, oh yeah, I think it was Klopp. It was a little interview he had with Arlo White. And it was after the, they lost 7-2 recently. I don't remember, but it was a crazy game. And he was talking about that defeat. And he said, losing sometimes could be a better lesson and better for growth sometimes than the actual win of a game. He's like, you don't want it to necessarily be 7-2, but you can learn a lot 
get better from a loss. And, and that's what the hope is. If you don't get better from a loss, then there was no growth in that moment and you missed an opportunity for growth. And I think how we talked with our team a little bit about the R factor, the how do you respond? The R factor, you know, you have some event plus R equals the outcome. So the R factor, we control our response to any event. So we have injuries in soccer all the time. Like we're one of the most injured sports in, in college, I think after football. So you have to figure it out with your response to like what set your plan, what's your goal to get back, how are we going to help you? What are the resources you have? And they really do have to be determined on setting their mindset and their direction to achieve that goal. And that's all about the R factor. Alex Ferguson also had a, a quote on that is about the fact that really how you respond to the losing is what makes up a winner. And, right. and I think that is basically what you're talking about there. And that happens before the event. You, you choose, you're preparing for those events and how you respond. Your instinct likely not be the right response in those really dire situations. And I remember actually one, and I'd love for you to talk about it in that team during the national championship semifinal, I actually texted you, I think the, the next day about it when there was a, a mistake in the semifinal that I think it was a pass back. I believe it was two yeah, World Cup a- players and uh, pass back. I mean, why don't you take it from there? It was Abby Dahlkemper, who's now a member of our national team, and Caitlin Rowland, who's U20 World Cup player, pro goalkeeper. And Abby just hit a, a soft back pass. And it was one of those that you see, they had a really fast forward, run onto it. And Caitlin was dead in the water he had no chance and it was just one of those you watch as a coach and their forward runs onto it and you know takes her first touch around caitlin and scores into an open goal and as a coach you're like oh that and i can't remember how much time was left when that happened it was, it was a bit of time for sure it wasn't like the end but it was one of those feelings you have you're like we cannot lose a game like that that was my like initial thought there's no way if we lose we'll We'll lose, you know, like because they beat us, not because we make a mistake. That's why it was like, oh, that gut wrenching feeling. And that team was a really good team. We had a lot of quality players, but so was that Virginia team. And we just kept fighting and doing our thing. I changed formations to be a little bit more aggressive. And our right back, who then was at that time later in the game, pushed up to right midfield because we were in a three-five-two. She ended up scoring the goal that tied it up um, like five minutes to go. Great. I think it was a pass by Sarah Killian. I can see it, it vividly in my mind. And, and Allie Courtnall finishes it. And we ended up going to PKs. And I actually have a great story about the PKs. I don't know if I ever told you about this. So and this is a great leadership moment, too, because one of our leaders, you know, you do PKs, you practice them the whole month of postseason, right? And so you have it down. Mm-hmm. Everyone say you have your top five, you have the order, you have your next five, you have their order. Well, one of our seniors, one of our captains decides during the game um, in the overtime, she doesn't want to take a kick, a penalty. And she's freaking out a little bit. And so we're like, where, like, I had no idea where this is coming from, but it was like, okay. She actually thought she had to come off the field because it, College rules are different. Anyone can take a penalty. You don't have to be on the field. So she was going, I think she was freaking out. She thought she had to be off the field and someone had to come on. Just to, She didn't want to be in the top 10 at that point, which was really surprising to us because she was playing well and calm, looked like she was confident. But so you can imagine one of your leaders, senior 
captain <laughs> besides that. And so you have to, as a coach, you have to exude confidence in that decision and, and, and make sh- no, let them know it's no big deal. And all right. You know, I remember bringing them together and like, okay, we need someone else. Like kind of all being excited about it. Like someone gets an opportunity who wants to be in the top five. And it was like silence for like, it felt like it was silent for 25 seconds. I think it was silent for maybe two and a half seconds. Cause I was like, Oh no. And like I got inside. I was just dying. Cause I was like, okay, someone has to step up here. And Sam Lewis, who's another national team player points to Rosie White, who's another national team player. She plays for New Zealand. So Rosie White and says, Rosie does. So Rosie didn't even say she wanted it. Sam Lewis said it for her. And I love that moment because Sam um, was one of our leaders. So was Rosie. They're both juniors, awesome players, individuals, but just Sam knew Rosie just needed to be empowered in that moment. And Rosie is like, okay. So I think someone believing in her gave her yeah. the confidence in that. So guess who, and not only was this the player that dropped out in the top five, she was the fifth kicker, which you know <laughs> is a really important spot to be in because it can come down to you making a kick to keep it going or win it or not to lose it. So Rosie, God bless her, that fifth kicker, she made that penalty to win it for us. So it was just one of those amazing stories really and circumstances that it was just cool to see the leadership. You know, you think, I was like, oh, your leader kind of fail you or, or, or not follow through. I'm like, no, that's not it. It was just a change of circumstances and we had someone step up and that's what life is sometimes. You need to step up for each other all the time. And so whatever reason, and the last thing I want as a coach is someone to take a penalty that doesn't want it, that's not mentally. So I'm glad she had the confidence to say she didn't want it. She wasn't confident for whatever reason. And I'd much rather her tell me that than to go up there and miss because she's not confident. So that was an awesome, that was an awesome semifinal for a lot of reasons. Yeah, I can actually, I can totally remember that. I mean, I didn't know that story, but I can just remember that game. It was, it was, that's so cool. Like you said, sometimes leadership looks different than you'd expect it. Sometimes that humility that even though you could say, I want the glory, but if you're not there, that's the leadership to say, you know, it's not, it's about the team. It's about the team right now. And I'm not, my head's not in right now for whatever reason. One of the cool things though, that I remember too, is going back to that goal that Doc Kemper and Roland, right? That, that mix up was the way that Roland reacted to it when she just picked up the ball, kicked it back to midfield. And what it appeared, I don't know what she was actually saying, but what it appeared to me, you know, as a former keeper was what I tried to do which was encourage the team, hey guys, we can do this. Not railing on Dahl Kemper, not saying, I can't believe you did that. As Beck and I say, when you shank a shot, you don't need someone telling you you shank the shot. You know you shank the shot. But she just appeared to be leading that team from the back to say, hey guys, we got this. Let's do it. Is that, am I right on that? Is that what she was doing? I never asked her what she said or what was said between them, but I do remember that there was no issue there was just there was confidence but like oh I can't believe that happened but like all right let's kick it off and shove it down their throat I, I just yeah. remember having that kind of feeling and even that feeling when we went to penalties because I think we knew at that time we had gained the momentum and I think we we were the better team I think we were the better team in the finals and, and deserved that championship and I remember a friend made, making a comment to me they're painting the sideline right before the, the penalties were about to start and I'm looking at one of my coaches, I'm laughing. I was just, just kind of like, well, here, here we go. And like, you know, penalties are such a crapshoot that it's just like, I, I was relaxed in a sense because I was like, well, you know, obviously inside you have the nerves and everything, but 
my friend made a comment. It was like, that's so cool. Cause like, I'm sure your team saw that. Like saw that you were relaxed and just believed in them. And I was like, I don't, I don't know exactly what someone said to me or what I said that was funny, but I was just kind of, I just remember having that feeling of, well, out of my hands now, like we've done what we can do. It's the players just got to you know go up there and do what they practice for the next last month and they'll be fine. So I, I just had right. confidence that we'd be fine and, and that Caitlin would step up. And I think she wanted that chance to step up because she knew Abby was bummed about the mistakes. So Caitlin stepping up too was a, right. was a huge thing and goalkeepers have that chance and what an awesome opportunity for them to do their thing. And I, I'm always just so impressed in those moments because it's such a hard situation when, when penalties and you just have to, the, the keepers just have that confidence and Caitlin did in that moment. That's absolutely right. And I think that's another leadership principle that uh, you talked about there too, which is as a leader to prepare your team to say, hey guys, we've done all we can and now we're ready. So mm-hmm. let's get to it. And then that gives that confidence that what we've done the best that we can do. And even with my kids, I'm like, hey, have you done all you can do? If you haven't, then that's a problem. Let's do more. But if you have, then go out there and do what you can do and have some fun and enjoy the moment, right? So as you mentioned earlier, as we talked about, even talking about that play, there's two national team players. There were other national team players, as you mentioned, on that team. And you tend to get quite a few national team players on your team. People want to come to UCLA. You're a great coach. You're a great program. People want to play there because of all of that. But with that comes some challenges and comes some great things too. So what are some of those things that are, let's start with the challenges that you have with bringing together a team full of people who are really, unless they came from the same team, it's a pretty good chance they were the best player on the team that they played for, right? Now they're coming together on another team. Well, how are you able to bring them together? But how, what are some of those challenges that you face as the coach of those all-stars coming together? Yeah, a lot of those players are used to being the star, the go-to player, scoring the most goals or getting the most minutes or whatever it is in their club environments. And they come to UCLA and every player has that mentality for the most part. And almost not every player, but a lot of the players played youth national team and were in part of World Cups and have goals to play for the full team and and play pro. So you have a lot of strong personalities. You have a lot of dedicated and players with this bunch of passion and desire. So it is, you have to figure out the balance of letting the play with freedom, giving them some structure and also picking, making sure the leaders have room to lead. And that was one of my, I think the hardest things for me in the past actually always seems to center around captains because there's multiple players that could be either deserving or would be good captains. And sometimes the coaches see it differently than the players. And so just how to decide captains is, um, it's been one of the struggles of my career. It's just like, oh God, there's one year that it just completely blew up. It was and it was a year after that really good class left that the Abby and Sarah Killian and Sam Mewis class that they were the leaders and the captains came from there. So we had a, we had a class that were now needed to be the leaders that had, some of them hadn't even played that much because of the, just how we were just so strong with upperclassmen for the, my first two years at UCLA. And so that was a really hard year, just having a player not react well to not being a captain we, we were right in who should have been captain, but we've been just, there's certain things that came up that 
again, the player's response was not good and the out, then they made the outcome pretty poor. And it set off things in motion for that season that just, it just spiraled down. So that was um, a big learning moment for me and our staff, just what, what to do in certain moments with players and their poor reactions. And there, I could go on and on about that season. That's probably a book in itself, but I, I think the players being a part of that decision is important with the captain. Yeah. Um, I think that sometimes it's even picking one, two or three captains. I can, that's a hard decision. Yeah. If anyone has like a perfect solution out there for that. And I talked to other coaches about it too. And they, they say the same things. They've had some issues with that as well. What are the things that you absolutely have to have the indispensable qualities of those captains that if you don't, if you don't see it, or if you see certain things that they do have that rule you out from being a captain, what are those non-negotiable factors that what, you're looking for in a captain? I think what rules you out is selfish. Some selfishness will definitely rule you out. If you're selfish and you can't put the team first and there's no way you can be a captain, captains have to have that. Just, they will, they'll bleed the blue and gold. The team is always first, no matter what. And they're willing to sacrifice. And no one ever can question their work rate, their desire, uh, their commitment to the team. And we've had some fabulous captains at UCLA that fit that mold and some ridiculously good captain so I, I know what that is we were trying to we were trying to fit a player that we knew wanted to be that player into that mold and it didn't didn't work and on the flip side of that as you said the selfish the selfish can be selfish and kind of do their own thing or the selfish can be selfish and really be a virus on the team and assuming you've had viruses on the team or a virus or one or two but how can you deal with the viruses? When do you know that they just need to be cut loose? How do you also identify that in the recruiting process? Because I think these are all things from soccer, but also for hiring in, in organizations, for leaders, really in any part of life, you have these issues. So how, how do you do with, deal with that? Because you don't have much time in the recruiting process. Yeah, I know in recruiting, we don't. It's, we, we don't have as much time to talk to them, get to know them. I feel like I have a pretty good read on People in general, I can, I can kind of sniff that out, especially in recruiting. I also watch them on the field. I watch body language. I watch how they interact with their coach. It's funny, recruits don't think we pay that much attention. Sometimes I think the coaches are on the sidelines uh, talking to each other, but I notice, I notice what they say to their teammates. I notice what they say to the coaches and just body language. If a ref makes a bad call, I know. And not that you can't react, like I, and I'm sure I've had many reactions to a ref in my day, but it's, it's okay, do you react and move on, and can you get over it quickly? And how do you then lead your teammates? And I definitely stay clear of some players because of parents I hear on the sideline. It's like, oh, I don't want that, because that's not going to be a student athlete that has good mental health for us if they're parents like that. There's no way that's going to be good for us. So. Parents, make sure you're well-behaved as well. But I think sometimes you do have someone that is dealing with something and they lash out in certain ways. And that's, I think, what you have to get to the bottom was like, why are they acting like this? What's the core reason? What's going on? Because usually people, generally speaking, people are good and, and want to please you and they want to be a good teammate. But every now and then you get, you do get the selfish ones and they might be selfish because they come from an, they're maybe an only child or they've had certain parenting that 
led them to be a little bit more selfish. They haven't been put through adversity. So when something, they, they don't know how to respond well. And so that's when you see some things start to happen. And as coaches, we you know try to, in those situations, you want to try to over-communicate and really get to the core of something. We've had players go to counseling that needed it to deal with some stuff. Right now, especially in, in COVID times, I think more players than not should be going to counseling and we should need to check in on mental health. We have a great program at UCLA that they can, they have that resource to tap into and we we need to make sure it's not um, seen as a negative thing. It's a positive thing. Like everyone needs to talk to somebody and sometimes so whether it's talking to us or other teammates or third party parents, whatever it might be. We just want to try to help them work through whatever it is and then grow. Like I've had players I've seen from their freshman year to graduating that they were super selfish, but then they learned to be a good teammate. They learned to sacrifice and put others first and be servant leaders. And that's something we've tried to hammer home is this, how are you serving your teammates? Is it all about someone doing something for you or can you serve your teammates? Can we serve the community? Can we serve other athletes and other teams? Can we go support them? There's a lot of things that we try to hammer home in that respect. I can remember conversations with you about some of your players and you say, man, if I can just get this one to get that, if she is not selfish, she can be such a better player. And then to watch the next year of her playing and seeing that somehow you got through to her. So these aren't just words I can tell with you. And it's something that it's not just talk. You're walking the talk on this. And so I definitely encourage you coaches out there, different people out there to really listen to that as far as rather than just cutting them loose to say, you know what, they're part of our team and there's a lot more there. How can we unlock that? How can we help them to understand that there's so much better if they're not just that selfish player playing for themselves? But let's say the players aren't playing. And as we talked about, these are players who not only are expected to play or expecting to play, but they're players who probably are maybe just a little bit lesser than in a lot of the cases. And there just happens to be a national team player on the team. There happens to be somebody else who just for that game is better suited or whatever it may be. And you have that luxury as a coach, but these players, how do you keep them content? How do you keep them understanding that their role is still part of the team, even if they're not on the field? That's one of the hardest things, especially when you, in the college game when we have the rosters of 30 plus sometimes, and you might only have 22 travel, obviously 11 starters. And it really comes down to make them all, making them all feel valued in whatever their role may be. And it's hard. It's definitely easier said than done because coaches a lot of times, especially in season, like head coaches have to focus maybe on the top 15 players, the ones that are going to be getting the most minutes. And when we split up in training, I might work with a certain group more. And so we, we try to be mindful of making sure I do work with the other players and making sure they feel like they have a chance to travel, a chance to break into the starting lineup. But when they say that, well, I didn't get my minutes, so I couldn't prove to you. I'm like, well, your minutes are during the week. Your minutes are in training. So that's when you have to prove to me. That's when people earn or maybe lose their starting position. It's not necessarily what's done in a game. That's week to week. There's a lot of variables that go into that, those decisions from a Friday, Sunday game or Thursday, Sunday game. But it's really what they do during the week and how consistent they can be in their actions. And also the ones that are coming in, to watch video, the ones that are really trying to help themselves, you want to help them more because you see them actually making a huge effort to then follow through with things you're telling them. 
one of my pet peeves is an athlete comes in and asks, well, what can I do better? Just really general. Um, they know what they can do better. I would love when if athletes just come in and say, yeah, I know I haven't been tracking well, defending that, but I feel like I've been doing X, Y, and Z. What's going to make an impact on me getting more minutes is if they can call out themselves a little bit on what it is, because they know there's no way they don't know. And so that general question of what can I do better? It just drives me nuts. Well, one thing you can do better is come in and watch a video. If you really don't know, then come in and watch a video. That's one thing you can do better. <laughs> and then we can, yeah. you can, you can point it out to me, the things that I think you already know. So sometimes you have to call out the athletes to be a little bit more in tune and realistic with Like you said, I think that there's a few layers to it, right? There's the players who are not playing because they're just not at that level. But then there's the players who aren't playing because maybe they're not doing what they need to be doing. Or like you said, they're not going and doing that extra film or the extra training or just being out there. And you see those. And like you said, you're watching. And whether they think it or not, you're watching. Or one of your assistants is watching and then they're seeing you're seeing those things that are the intangibles that will make that difference in that game when you need the player to do what we talked about earlier today, right? That you need that player to step up at that time and you need to know they're going to be there. And that's interesting because a lot of times these players haven't been tested with that in their club careers, in their youth careers, because they've never had a position challenged. Another thing that you have with a big team and particularly when these kids are coming from all over the country, all over the world. In your case, my guess is I I'm just guessing here, but it's very likely that these players come in with differing worldviews, political views, and with all the polarized country you live in and really polarized world we live in, how do you keep a healthy culture in your locker room and your team with all the craziness that's going on in our world today, particularly when it's almost a certainty that your players aren't going to agree on everything and all these issues, some of which are presumably very deeply and strongly held. And you obviously hold your own and your coaches hold their own and the different people. How do you do that? How are you able to keep your culture healthy? One of our mantras that we have is infectious influence. And we want to influence each other in obviously positive ways. So that might be with views on things and like why you view something that way and um, you know, really legitimate hard conversations which we've had and I don't know if you know we were the, the first college team soccer team to kneel our team knelt and continued to kneel for a couple of years that started because of a player coming to me that said I can't take it anymore it caught me off guard because we hadn't had any conversations about it but I think the main thing that was really important is that we would support each other and listen to each other's views and talk about how we wanted to do this. How did we want to support each other? How did we, it was Kaya McCullough, who's very vocal. And it's interesting over the course of these four years are very socially active. There some of them are politically active. And we decided as a team that everyone would kneel before the anthem started. And then people that wanted to stand, stand people that didn't, continue kneeling and that we would all continue to uh, have contact. So hands on shoulders to show our unity and solidarity. That was one of the coolest moments of my coaching career was that game. Cause I was really nervous for them because I know it could, it could be backlash or there could be a lot of negative things said. So that was a really interesting time that started three years ago. And so we've had other conversations with a lot of things politically and we're, making sure everyone registered the vote and 
we have them following up with each other. So I just, I love that everyone's open to the conversation and it's a respectful conversation. And it's something that as a coach, I've been really proud of this team and also UCLA, the activists that have come before you look at Arthur Ashe and Jackie Robinson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the list goes on. It's pretty cool to feel like we're a part of that. We're part of, of the athletes have a voice in, in trying to change life for the better and to see more equality and, and love out there and, and people that want to just help each other and serve each other. Because I think that that's what we're lacking. People just get into their views and they, they keep their conversations with people that agree with them and they don't necessarily talk about helping each other and how do we get people to change their views that maybe are different from us that maybe they need to see something, they need to hear certain stories. And I'm always open to reading new things and, and talking to people. But when it turns to very hateful rhetoric or some things that are just obviously not about equality and racial overtones, uh, racist overtones, and that, that's where I just, like, I have to stop as, as a human being. The really encouraging thing for me there is just hearing your team was able to have that civil dialogue, that conversation to listen to each other, to understand each other. Something like the other podcast I do is about the orphan care and vulnerable children. And we've had a conversation on that about abortion. And a lot of people are like, wow, you're taking on that. And I said, well, we had a, a guy who was part of an anti-abortion organization and a woman who wrote a book called Pro-Choice and Christian. And they had a conversation together that I was able to facilitate. And we started that conversation with, what do you agree on? So they could actually start with that premise that, look, when you humanize each other and you understand that you both have a lot more in common, most likely, than you're different on, and especially when you're part of the same team, to hear that you're having that civil dialogue. But at the end of the day, if you disagree with each other, that's okay on those issues. You can still be unified together as a team to go together and have this common goal and common vision and common mission together that you don't have to agree on literally everything under the sun because no two people will agree on everything under the sun. And so that's so healthy and that's so good. And I just love hearing that. And they may change each other's minds in the process and they may not. That's kind of what I heard there too. So that's something that I think that's so healthy. That's so encouraging. You may disagree with some of the things that Amanda was saying there. And again, that's okay, but to not, go to the personal, right? Those are issues. Those are things that you can disagree on and, and very smart people do. You know, it's interesting. When I first heard Colin Kaepernick knelt, I wasn't in agreement of it. I was like, wait, what? I think he first sat and then he changed to kneeling. And when I read the article about when he went to meet with that Navy SEAL about what, what that was all about. And the Navy SEAL is the one that suggested he kneeled instead of sat. And the whole premise behind that if you read that article, I got it right away. There was no question. And that was, you know, three years ago, right? Four years ago, I guess, probably now. And, and so there's no question for me that absolutely I stand behind that because of where his heart was. It's really about where your heart is in that action. And so there's some great people who stand and would never kneel. And that's awesome because their hearts it has a certain reason for that. But there's some equally great people who will kneel and will kneel until things change in this country and their heart's in the right place. And that's fantastic too, because they're doing a very peaceful protest in a sense that hopefully will raise this kind of conversation. Like I would never have read more into it if Colin never 
Neil, it made me dive deeper into then what kind of racial inequality are we talking about here? I came to this mindset from really looking at things closer and trying to figure out where people's hearts are. Because standing doesn't mean you're a good person by any means. And kneeling doesn't mean you're a bad person by any means. So I would just encourage people to, like you said, have those conversations and try to put like the human side of things into it. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that we learn when we do have conversations with people is you can still hold your deeply held beliefs and convictions and have conversations with people and get to know other people who disagree with you on some pretty core things. And you can walk away from it and say, you know what, we can still respect each other and love each other as, as human beings who, who are, depending on your worldview, mine is you're made in God's image. And so I'm going to see you as someone who's made in God's image. So we can agree on things, disagree on things. But when we have those conversations, to say, okay, at the end of the day, we'll walk away and say, whatever it is, I still hold my deeply held convictions. And if you change that, if you change my mind on those things, then that's, that's one thing. But if not, we can still walk away and say, you know what, we love each other and we can move on together. And I think in the context of a team, to bring it back to the leadership, I think as a leader, to be able to understand that you're going to have your culture and your team. And some coaches would say, look, we're just going to keep it out. But I think that for me, as a coach, I think that if you're wanting to develop a, a family culture on your team, that's not something that goes hand in hand with each other to say, just keep it out. Right. But some would say that and we could have an argument, but I think that that's something that as you, but if you do choose to bring it in, then it needs to be very clear that we're going to have civil dialogue here. And we're going to, when we step on that field and when we are together as a team, we are together as a team and we're unified. Would you agree with that? Oh, for sure. I think it depends on a coach's philosophy on what they want to address and what they don't. But I think not saying anything, you might be hurting some of your players, like just with some of the, the racial issues going on. I know if I had not brought up things in regards to George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, if I had not addressed things, I know those players, I would have lost them in a sense. I would have lost their respect. I would have lost their, I think they would have maybe have seen me differently as far as maybe someone that doesn't care about things that are touching them in a personal way. And I could, some coaches might be fine with that, like, but I couldn't, there's no way I could sit with that and have these players think that I don't care about them on personal level and things that touch them because of the differently than me or other teammates because of the color, uh, color of their skin. And so there are things I addressed that were uncomfortable. Like I don't necessarily feel like I want to say things at a certain time because it's just like, oh, I just feel so bad. I don't even know what to say sometimes. And I don't want to say the wrong thing. So I felt like I was like, what do I do? But I knew I couldn't do nothing. I had to do something and I had to say something. And I decided to acknowledge their pain. I acknowledged where they were and that we were there with them. It wasn't, it's not just the black girls on the team were feeling this pain. We all were. We all had this deep felt this conviction of things have to change and how do we help? What do we do? Yeah. So with that, I think the other side of it, I just want to, and it may be that it hasn't happened, and but I'd be curious, have there been players or could be coaches or other people that are part of the program who have come up and said, I don't agree with you on these things. I don't think you're right. I totally disagree with you. Does that 
affect anything? I mean, has that happened? First of all, if it hasn't, then it's just a purely hypothetical. But um, if it, it did, what would you with say? With annealing, it did. It happened with one of the coaches and didn't even say it uh, about herself not kneeling. She said she didn't think that players should kneel. I don't think they should kneel. I don't think we should kneel. And, and she had an immediate reaction to it that I was like, you need to take emotion out of it and really sit with it for a little while and maybe have a conversation with Kaya. Usually when people had something negative, it was out of an emotional response and not just like, okay, let me sit with this for a second. Let me do my own homework. And then maybe have a couple of conversations before I react out of emotion. So that was really good to see that coach do a 180 and just from having conversations. What would you have said if she didn't? Well, she didn't have to kneel, but she wasn't going to stop someone else from kneeling. I can tell you that. Yeah. I can, either was I. Honestly, yeah. I don't think it was my place to stop somebody. And I, I know coaches have done that. I think if someone wanted to do that, they should have the freedom to do that. That's just my personal belief. I, I get it. If other coaches say, no, we don't want that spotlight on us. Because we, we had some negative responses for sure. I had a couple of negative emails, but you know what? We didn't do it for positive reaction. We didn't do it for negative reaction. We just did it to highlight the, the moment and highlight the cause of racial equality and justice. My only worry was really for the team. I have coaches that don't agree me, with me with soccer decisions. And that's what we need those people around us. Cause we need, I don't want people that agree with everything on my staff. And I, I want to be pushed. I want to question myself and I want to look at, okay, why do I do it this way? And how can I change it? I always listen, even if I don't agree at the very beginning, my assistants, I think would say this about me. I might say no, or I might not, it might seem like I wasn't listening, but then I always take it home and unpack it and. I might come back with a response that was because of what they said. So I'm always open to that. And I think as head coaches, you're only going to get better if you surround yourself with, with players and, and assistants that, that push you and question you and try to just make it better. Obviously, there's a way to do it. You can't question right. every move I make, but I love having that kind of conflict at times. And that's my personality too. I'm definitely a, I don't mind getting in arguments or playing devil's advocate. I kind of do that for fun sometimes just to see what the other person can come back with. I don't shy away from that at all. And I think conflict resolution can be a great thing and can make you a stronger coach. It can make you a stronger program. It can, it can embolden your team to be like, you know, we, we kind of come, came through this and we talked a lot about a lot of hard things and and now we're ready to go do something on the field that in comparison seems a little easier. <laughs> we get to go play a sport we love. So I think in the end, it just unites us and, and ties us together. And one of the hashtags I think we're going to use going forward is lift as we climb. And it came from, it was a black women's group back when women were fighting for the right to vote. Like think of that, you know, lift as we climb. So as you're, and you can think of it as an individual, as you're, climbing and you're ascending and you're trying to get to this goal, are you lifting other people up around you while you're doing that? As you're climbing, are you leaving people behind or are you lifting them up? And I like that thought. I think that's a good place to finish this part of the conversation anyway. We have one more question to ask, but I love that idea. As you said, you're lifting each other up. You're part of that journey together. And I think that's really at the core of the question and why I asked as far as the differing worldviews, political views, ideologies, whether it's religion, whether it's politics issues, whether it's race issues, whatever it may be, there might be people differing and coming at it from different angles, different 
backgrounds, whatever it may be. And it's very likely whatever team you're coaching, whatever team you're a part of, again, you're not going to agree with everything that everyone believes. But as you said, also, it's healthy, actually, to surround yourself with people who will disagree with you on things to challenge you to have your convictions and for you to really know what you believe, for you to really know who you are to really know why you believe what you believe and not just that someone told you that or you read that somewhere, but right. that you actually understand it. And, and it's in those conversations really that, that it's going to be challenged and it's also going to be confirmed. It's also going to be something that you will see it from their perspective, which that will never be a bad thing. And in life to, to see things from different yeah. people's perspective. And the only way to get there is to have the conversations and to actually have those conversations in the midst of relationship. And I think people either try to shortcut the relationship part or they never have the conversation. But I think that when you have the relationships built and then you have the conversations within those relationships, you can have that vulnerability and transparency in a way that you can walk away from it and go, okay, our relationship was actually strengthened in that conversation, even though we disagree on it. Do you agree with that? Yeah, for sure. I think you can have some great bonds with people, but not necessarily see eye to eye on some things. Like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, one of her best friends on the court was someone that was politically the opposite of her, but they were, yeah. they were very close. I can't remember. It was a Scalia. I'm not sure. Yeah. Scalia. Yep. Scalia, yep. Sorry. <laughs> I'm, right. I'm killing, I'm killing things, pronunciations, but uh, Scalia. Yeah. And because I think they knew they deep down they respected each other as people, and they knew they came from a place. And it goes back to where, like, where is your heart? Is your heart really about loving others and wanting equality for others and respecting others, or is your heart somewhere else? Then that might be a problem, you know. And that's where, that's where you, I think, I I can read people and get a sense of really where they are. And so it is sometimes it it has been tough, especially in these this political climate to, to know, feel like someone's heart and then hear some things that come out of their mouth. You're like, Oh gosh, yikes. And I think that's, we're in danger now. I don't know if you watched the, the social dilemma on Netflix. I have not seen it yet. I've heard a lot about it, but I've not watched it yeah. yet. Watch the social dilemma. Cause that's, I think that's where people, some really good people can go down some really bad rabbit holes, whether it's conspiracy theories or just what's in their timelines and what's what information is being shot to them can be totally different than information I'm reading. And it's the whole fake news thing. And, and so it's, that's the scary part to me because I think some good people can be influenced in the wrong ways and negative ways. I think people need to get off their phones and start talking to each other. And there's a positive side to social media for sure. As a coach, I, I use it for recruiting and I use it to promote our players and our team and our program, UCLA athletics, all that. But I, I try not to, I don't, engage in any of that political stuff. I, I did four years ago. Holy cow. And I, that did, that did me no good. I think people just need to just go to real life people and stop looking at posts of whoever actually talk yep. to your friends and get views on things and, or read articles from other countries, go to BBC or whatever news outlet. Cause some people don't trust the news outlets here. Okay. Read other ones. And so I just, I want people to get off their phones. I want them to not be deceived. So that's my real concern. And even for our student athletes, because I see them on with a TikTok or Snapchat and they have so much more to distract them nowadays than we had. It was so much simpler back then for us. 
and we're less likely to get in trouble for photos and posts and we didn't have any of that stuff and I also see this adding to their mental instability like it's not good so (laughs) we got to figure this out as a human race really well folks we have talked about a lot more than we had in this outline (laughs) but I think it was really good stuff and that's not surprising because we've had a lot of conversations that if we talked about everything that we've talked about this would be a lot longer than it already has been which is longer than we expected But I think it was worth it. And I think it was good. That's the thing about this is all of this is critical to leadership. All of this is critical to getting the best out of your players. All of this is critical to get the best out of your employees, getting the best out of your kids, your whoever it is like to have these conversations to be really open and vulnerable with each other. And that's something that, yeah, you coach a women's team, but some people say, oh, well, vulnerability is not a masculine thing. And I'm like, no, it's a human thing, folks. So if you think it's not something for you, you're wrong. And I will say it's something that's absolutely necessary. And vulnerability looks different for everybody too. But this is something that I think, again, that vulnerability is so much easier and it's so much more authentic when you're in the context of relationship and to earn the conversation as well. Like if you come in as a freshman and you're just spouting off and saying all your your views and this is what I think and this is what I think and you should follow that probably wouldn't receive very well for good reason because you haven't earned that conversation yet. So Again, we're not going to keep going on that because we could keep going for days probably talking about these things. Because as you, if you haven't seen already, folks, Amanda's pretty passionate about things she does. So whether it's coaching or sharing her views on whatever, like she's going to be passionate because she holds these convictions strong, which is one of the things I admire about her. With that, Amanda, let's talk about something a bit. It might be lighter and it might not be. I don't know. You've already talked about a couple of resources that you have read or watched recently. But have you, what have you read, watched, listened to recently that has most impacted your thinking on really the intersection of life, soccer, and, and leadership? You know, I'm really into watching those documentaries on, what is it on? I think uh, Amazon Prime. Like Prime? Prime? Yeah. yeah, Prime. The, uh, the Man City one. The, I'm watching the Tottenham one right now. I even started watching one of the rugby ones. I think it was All Blacks. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. So, that's a phenomenal. Yeah, so I, I have a couple episodes into that one. I just started watching, there's... On Netflix last night, there was one with the the Barcelona kind of documentary of kind of their evolution. And I think it's called Passit. I can't remember what it's called, but I'm not not good at remember titles and names apparently, but that's all right. That's all right. Because people can go look it up. No, I do like seeing how coaches deal with adversity and also how they, how they manage these incredible lineups that have elite players that are on the bench that are making millions and millions of dollars. It's just, you asked me about our elite players. It's like, well, so ask Pep how he manages Man City or yep. it's just insane. So I like really watching those documentaries that put you into it and you can see a progression of a team and, and it's, it, it seems somewhat real. I know they edit it to you know, make it more dramatic or whatever it might be, but I think we learn a lot from just watching the game, watching another program. I've talked to our women's basketball coach here, Corey Close. I actually had her do a team Zoom with my team. I, I respect her a lot and her as a leader. She's, if you don't follow her, you should. She's had some really good posts on leadership stuff on her Instagram. She's quality, quality person. We should probably have her on here, Phil, now that I think about it. But yeah, the, get back to your question. I, I really, I do, I love watching the game and I, there's a book, How Soccer Explains the World, I think. How um, Soccer Explains the World. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That was a really interesting book. I read that years ago. But 
I love the thought of our game being, you know, it's just something that it does emulate life in a way and being on a team and in athletics and you have adversity, you have setbacks, you have things, you have so much tremendous opportunity for growth and then the relationships. And it comes down to the end. These girls are my daughters. They're my girls. And I have a lot of them (laughs) since it's been 20 plus years. And I, I go to weddings and I hold newborn babies and I've actually a year ago went to, I didn't go to the funeral service, but one of our players, my players from UNBC had passed away and it happened to be our, my, the girls that were in, she wasn't living in that area anymore in, in the in the DC area, but a lot of the players were still, and they, they had planned to just get together and have a cookout and meet up at this park. And it happened to be when we were in Virginia playing and I stayed for that event. I went and met up with all these UNBC players I hadn't seen in over what, 18 years, 20 years. So that's in the end, what it's all about is the connections and always feeling like you have someone that has your back and you have a family, somewhat large family, but they're there. And I think they always know that I'm here. That's the important thing. I'm always going to be here for them. Yep. And I have no doubt that that's the truth. And that's how everyone of your players feels. I'm assuming vast, vast majority, if not every one of them. But thanks again, Amanda. Thanks for the friendship. Thanks for taking the time. As we have said, a little bit longer than we thought, but hopefully everyone out there stuck with us through this conversation. And I do hope that you learned a lot from it. So thanks again, Amanda. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So folks out there, as we have said in the past, I encourage you to subscribe to this show. If you liked what you heard today, like what you've been hearing on the past episodes, I encourage you to subscribe. If you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your episodes, that would be very much appreciated. And we'd love for you to connect with us. You can go to our website, HowSoccerExplainsLeadership.com. And you can go there and go to the contact page if you have any questions or anything else you'd want to engage us with. So with that, thanks a lot for the download. And I do hope that you take everything that you learned today and you use it to help you to be a better leader, to be able to understand the intersection of soccer, life, and leadership. Thanks a lot. Have a great week.